Section 11 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Prompter's Daughter by Anna Cora Mawat Ritchie. Chapter 2. The cricket on the hearth was repeated a number of nights, and Tina always appeared as Dot's baby always arrested the attention of the audience. A grand spectacle was in preparation, entitled Time and His Wonderful Works. The wonders which time affects by gradual steps were exhibited as taking place instantaneously through a succession of marvelous transformations, well-executed stage delusions. The sower strewed seed upon the bare earth, Time passed over the furrows with his iron-shod feet, and lo, the ground was decked with verdure and bloom, and cities sprang up where the fields of corn waved a moment before. The young lover, wooing his coy nymph in a bower of roses, was breathed upon by time. The bower vanished. In its place appeared an old-fashioned fireside, the enamoured pair were metamorphosized into antiquated Darby and Joan, shivering in the chimney corner. The seasons were also represented gliding with rapid transitions one into the other. Through very elaborate scenic effects, spring was so minutely depicted that the spectators almost fancied they inhaled the breath of flowers and hearkened to a chorus of birds. In reality, a fine imitation of their tuneful throats through the medium of musical whistles. A golden-haired child, just dawning into maidenhood, crowned with swelling buds, bedecked with young leaves and fruit-tree blossoms, presided over the year's first holiday. Time flitted across the scene. The flowers expanded into perfect bloom, the trees covered with foliage, Birds twittered on the boughs. Butterflies flew about in the air. The roseate light took on a warmer, more garish hue. The maiden in her springtime disappeared. A woman of oriental beauty, in the full luster of her charms, reposed upon a bank luxurious with flowers. Garlands floated from her shoulders. Roses were scattered amidst her unbound locks and dropped their leaves to cushion her feet. Time glided by. The trees were hung with fruit. The leaves exchanged their emerald green for crimson and yellow tints. The gathered harvest shone in the distance, and beyond appeared a vineyard laden with amber and purple grapes. The recumbent summer goddess was gone, and a majestic-looking being of mellower, statelier beauty stood in her place. The masses of her chestnut hair glittered with bright-hued fruit interwoven with the long, pendant tendrils of the vine, shooting downward like a veil. Her waist was girdled with autumnal leaves. In her hand she carried a basket filled with the most delicious produce of the vines and the trees. Time passes once more. The leaves fall. The bare trees sparkle with icicles. The ground is suddenly sheeted over with snow. Mountains gleaming in perspective are coroneted with snowy wreaths. The regal-looking queen of autumn is displaced by one of even more imperial beauty. 
her severely classic features are colorless passionless a diadem of icicles surmounts her black braided hair her vesture shines as with sleet the evergreens she holds in her hands are covered with ice the red berries of holly and the pearly mistletoe peep through the frosting covering those who look upon her can hardly repress a transient shiver time carried a scythe in his right hand an hourglass hung at his girdle his wings were large and shaped like those of a bat his white beard flowed to his waist his blanched locks fell off his shoulders his left arm enfolded an infant a waxen doll had generally been used on similar occasions but tina's appearance as dot's baby and the attraction which the audience manifested towards her induced mr tuttle to request that the child should supplant the usual waxen representative robin and susan had no alternative it was a bitter winter for them a winter full of struggles and hard upon all the poor the pittance that the child earned helped to supply its absolute wants fuel clothing medicine nutritious food susan's maternal heart ached as she removed little tina's woolen wrappings that a picturesque but very airy garment might take their place the actor who personated time was an uncouth untender bachelor he received the child from the arms of its mother as though it had been some inanimate piece of theatrical property and held it in the requisite position with a rough grasp when he stalked upon the stage he waved his scythe carelessly and as it glittered in the bright light susan trembled as though she feared it would fall and crop her opening flower the apparent danger made her forget that the scythe was only a harmless bit of pasteboard and that the flash of steel merely proceeded from the innocent covering of silver paper little tina seemed instinctively to become accustomed to the kind of life which she was destined to lead she lay contentedly in the arms of old time and even swept back from her cheek his white beard and wound her fingers in his floating locks susan met time at his first exit exclaiming oh mr crowfoot i am so fearful you hold the child too tightly she is very delicate pray do get out of my way good woman the child is doing well enough it's not crying don't bother me or i shall forget my cues and then we shall have tuttle forfeiting us both tuttle is great on forfeit they help old higgins treasury stand back will you and leave the child alone she dared not address him again but while mr crowfoot was looking over his part she stealthily clasped tina's hand the cue was spoken more subtly than the actor expected he thrust his book into his bosom and not having noticed susan's fond action rushed on the stage so abruptly that tina was almost jerked out of his arms the young mother was more cautious after this but she took her post at every wing where time was forced to make his exit she had asked robin to tell her all the cues and now she ventured to throw a warm shawl over the child's light drapery taking care to remove the needful protection the instant the cue was given the last marvellous transformation was over time made his final exit dropping his scythe 
half tossed the child into its mother's longing arms and unbuckled his heavy wings seemingly as glad to get rid of his animate as his inanimate emblematic accessories the spectacle found favor with the public and was repeated for thirty nights every night tina lay nestling in the rude bosom of time perhaps she melted the stern heart beneath the soft pressure of her innocent form for gradually the actor grew more tender towards her touched her more gently and became more respectful to her mother one night when susan placed her as usual in his arms the infant looked up so confidingly in his face that he involuntarily kissed the smiling mouth but ashamed of the action he laughed with a half scowl saying that he hated the little imps he even made some insolent speech to susan about kissing the pretty mother through the child but susan well knew that the child's angelic look had won the kiss she comprehended in what manner the hard-hearted actor was softened better than he understood himself and paid no heed to his audacious words shortly after the spectacle of time was withdrawn a succession of fairy pageants was produced and tina was constantly in requisition she could now walk and had commenced to prattle intelligibly sometimes the audience beheld her curled up in a mammoth rose at the sound of music the flower unfolded and the child sprang out with a butterfly wings and a silver wand the fairy of the flower sometimes she represented the infant that titania stole from its earthly mother sometimes she was a cupid speeding shafts in all directions sometimes a hobgoblin towards the close of the season burlesque and fairy pieces gave place to legitimate dramas tragedies melodramas comedies then tina had rest and even her rejoicing mother was now and then exempt from theatrical toil and could spend the evening home alone with her child sometimes she was lured into mrs gildersley's cosy sitting-room with tina on her knee and her work in her hands she alternately chatted with the kind landlady instructed the child or sang snatches of opera melodies in which tina instinctively joined but never did the busy fingers cease their employment these were evenings of calm happiness which had but one auxiliary wanting their completeness robin's presence he of course was in the theatre at his nightly post long before the curtain rose and forced to remain until it descended for the last time one night he brought susan the information that mr upton who was then starring in a number of tragically terrible parts would enact rolla on the ensuing evening and that tina was cast as cora's child this was the first regular drama in which tina had appeared susan herself was to personate one of the priestesses susan had never seen the play at rehearsal instead of remaining in the green room until summoned by the call-boy according to the usual custom of actors she carried a small bench to one of the wings and sat down to watch the action of the scene when tina first appears or rather cora's child cora is seated on a mossy bank and playing with the child at her knee alonzo the father is leaning over them with delight the following dialogue is delivered cora 
Now confess, does he resemble me or not? Alonso. Indeed, he is liker thee, thy rosy softness, thy smiling gentleness. Hora. But his auburn hair, the color of his eyes, Alonso. Oh, my lord's image and my heart's adored. Pressing the child to her bosom. Alonso. The little darling urchin robs me, I doubt, of some portion of thy love, my Cora. At least he shares caresses, which till his birth were only mine. Cora. Oh, no, Alonzo, a mother's love for her sweet babe is not a stealth from the dear father's store. It is a new delight, which turns and quickens gratitude to him, the author of her augmented bliss. Alonzo. Could Cora think me serious? Cora. I am sure he will speak soon. Then will be the last of the three holidays allowed by nature's sanction to the fond mother's heart. Alonso. What are those three? Cora. The ecstasy of his birth I pass. That, in part, is selfish. But when the first white blossoms of his teeth appear, Breaking the crimson buds that did encase them, that is a day of joy. Next, when from his father's arm he runs without support, and clings laughing and delighted to his mother's knee, that is the mother's heart's next holiday. And sweeter still the third, whene'er his little stammering tongue shall utter the grateful sound of father, mother. Oh, that is the dearest joy of all! Susan drank in every word and involuntarily murmured, Oh, I could play Cora with my whole soul. I have felt all that. I have had those holidays with my Tina. But they would never give me such a part to act. They would not trust me with it. Though I could play it, I feel that I could. Alonzo and Rolla go forth to fight the Spaniards. Alonzo is taken prisoner by Pizarro. Rolla breaks to Cora the fatal intelligence that her husband is either slain or captive to the Spaniards. She determines to seek him even in the Spanish camp, and, deaf to Rolla's prayers and remonstrances, snatches up the child, distractedly exclaiming, My child, everywhere we shall be safe. A wretched mother, bearing a poor orphan in her arms, has nature's passport through the world, and rushes forward. Cora is next seen in a thick forest, her child asleep on a bed of leaves. The elements are supposed to be at war. The order is given, theatrically, for an abundance of thunder and lightning and rain at night. Manufactured tempests are omitted at rehearsal. Cora covers the child with her mantle and veil, and, faint and weary, watches the leafy couch. Meanwhile, Rolla has sought Alonso, and has found means to enter his dungeon, and, by stratagem, to set him at liberty, remaining a prisoner in his place. Alonso is passing through the very forest which Cora has just reached, on her way to the Spanish camp. Cora recognizes his voice in the distance and, starting up, joyfully flies to seek him. Two Spanish soldiers enter, see the slumbering child, and bear it away. The child is taken by the soldiers to Pizarro and brought before him during his interview with Rolla. Rolla incautiously speaks of the boy as Alonso's child. Pizarro, 
on hearing this, determines to keep the infant, for, through him, Alonzo is again his prisoner. Rolla argues, pleads with him, forgets the warrior, and sinks upon his knees, imploring that the child may be given back to the agonized mother. Pizarro remains obdurate. Then Rolla indignantly starts up, draws his sword, and cries, Then was this sword heaven's gift! He darts forward, seizes the child by the arm, and, whirling him around with a wild, melodramatic action, holds him at arm's length above his head. Tina uttered a shrill cry of pain as she was tightly grasped by the tragedian and whirled aloft. That cry pierced the mother's heart, and she sprang up from her concealed seat and ran to the stage. Oh, sir, you have hurt her. Give her to me. Put her down. Pray put her down. You have dislocated her arm. A stifled moan from the child showed that she was acutely suffering, and the actor dropped his arm, saying, What was the brat whimpering about? If she is going to do that at night, she'll play the deuce with my best point. Susan was examining Tina's arm and questioning the gentle child who, even at that early age, exhibited wonderful self-control and powers of endurance. Robin, too, had left his prompter's seat and was stooping anxiously over the little one. Fortunately, the arm was not dislocated, only slightly sprained. The probabilities were that, in a second experiment of the kind, especially if made during the more impassioned acting at night, the child's fragile arm would be dislocated or broken. "'What is the meaning of this interruption?' demanded Mr. Tuttle, in a dignified tone of rebuke. "'Mrs. Trueheart, leave the stage. Proceed, sir, with your part,' addressing the actor. "'Try that point over again.' But Susan's maternal nature conquered her habitual timidity. She stood up, erect and determined, before the cold-blooded stage manager, holding Tina's hands. "'Not with my child, sir,' she answered, in a voice such as no one had ever heard her use. It was so firm and clear and almost defiant. "'Would you have her arm dislocated or broken? Do you think she would shriek unless the pain had been terrible? She who hardly knows what it is to cry? She never cried as other children do. He must have almost broken her arm.' He shall not lift her in that manner again. I'd not miss making that point for the arms of a dozen children, said Upton excitedly. Then, Mrs. Trueheart, we must find another child, and if the new child fill one part, she must fill all during the season. We do not want two children regularly engaged in the theater, answered Tuttle unconcernedly. Susan turned deadly pale and was seized with an inward trembling. The loss of the situation to the child and her own discharge, which would probably follow, were calamities that would bring starvation to her door. Still she stood resolute and replied, "'Discharge us both, sir, if you please. Better that we should starve without employment than that I should see my child crippled.' "'It would only be in the fashion of the family.' sneered Upton, undertone, but the unfeeling taunt reached the ears of both Robin and Susan. Susan, take our daughter home, said Robin Trueheart. Our daughter. It was the first time she had heard him designate the child as our daughter, 
and there was a strange solemnity mingled with pride in his tone. His countenance had grown more ashy than hers through suppressed emotion. High hopes had he builded upon that child's success in the theater. In an instant they were dashed to the ground. Mr. Higgins, who had been riding at the stage manager's table, now stepped forward. He was a shrewd, calculating, selfish man. The dislocation of a child's arm would to him have been a matter of very little importance, but he knew how valuable Tina was in the theater. He remembered that he paid both father and mother a much smaller sum than would procure equally good substitutes for the situation. He had noted the effect produced by that child upon the audience whenever she appeared, and though his own heart had now and then warmed towards her, it was interest rather than any nobler feeling that prompted him to interfere. "'Is there no safer manner of lifting the child?' he inquired of the enraged actor. "'No, sir. My point depends on my holding the drawn sword in one hand and Cora's child in the other, and my arm extended while I stand in this attitude,' exemplifying. "'And I wouldn't spoil that point for all the crying children in Christendom. If this puny thing won't do, let me have a child that will play the part.' Mr. Upton was drawing large houses— that fact entitled him to the manager's respect. His wishes must not be thwarted. The piece was a favorite one. It could not be withdrawn. Mr. Higgins was puzzled. Not so Mr. Tuttle. As soon as he suspected his superior's desires, he changed his tone. Not for all the world have this little darling injured, patting Tina's head and speaking in a tone that he meant to be meltingly tender. The point is easily managed. Mr. Gildersleeve, bring me a leathern girdle. The girdle was soon selected out of some of the heterogeneous heaps in the memorable property room. Mr. Tuttle fastened it securely around the child's waist. Now, Upton, elevate the child by means of this belt. Hold it firmly here, just at the back. You will find your point equally effective. I have seen it done a hundred times. "'No, let me try it first, said the still-alarmed mother, as she made an awkward attempt to imitate the melodramatic movement of the Peruvian hero. "'Mother, me not afraid,' said Tina. "'Please do it,' looking up winningly in the actor's face. The tragedian petulantly caught up the child, throwing himself into a fine heroic attitude. Tina smiled down upon her mother to show her that she felt safe and was unhurt. Rolock continued. Then was this sword heaven's gift, not mine. Who moves one step to follow me dies upon the spot. He rushes out, pursued by the Spaniards, and is next seen crossing a high bridge bearing the child. These stage bridges are often hurriedly and carelessly erected and cause frequent accidents. Susan could hardly choke down an exclamation of horror. The soldiers fire on Rolla, but the firing is not rehearsed. At night, this would be another dreadful moment. How could she endure to see the guns pointed at her child? Some of them might accidentally be loaded. A ball is supposed to strike Rolla. When the audience next behold him, he staggers into Atalaba's tent, reels towards Cora, 
places the child on her bosom, and at her frightened exclamation of, Oh, heaven, there's blood upon him, gasp out, Tis my blood, Cora, and an instant afterwards dies. Susan had been deeply interested in the plot of the drama, but the rehearsal towards its close had caused her a succession of agonies. That bridge, those guns, they haunted her the rest of the day. Again and again she charged Robin to try the bridge himself and to inspect every gun carefully. He promised to do so, and there was little fear of his breaking his word. Night came, and Susan half forgot her fears as she dressed Tina and found how lovely she looked in her snowy tunic and golden girdle, beneath which the important leathern band was safely fastened. A white fillet circled her curling locks, which had taken the hue of amber when it reflects back a ray of the sun. The child had been gifted with uncommon beauty, beauty of an ethereal, highly spiritual character. Her limbs were exquisitely symmetrical, though so diminutive. The brilliant whiteness of her complexion had an almost unearthly aspect, and Susan would never allow a touch of stage rouge to profane the child's colorless cheek. Her singularly dilated eyes, but for their soft expression, would have seemed too large for her delicate face. The moist, unfathomable blue of those large eyes gave out its light as a twilight shows a star, and drew the heart of the beholder in. Her brow was high, and when the clustering curls were gathered back, the most careless eye would note that its development strikingly resembled that of her father. She inherited, too, her father's impenetrable patience, but her patience had not, like his, a touch of sadness. It had not been the offspring of trial. It was a natural gift, which early training daily perfected. Her mother's softness seemed to have infused into her own more vivacious spirit, and evinced itself even in the midst of exuberant joyfulness, the sport of glee, that neither father nor mother had ever known. All her motions were light, rapid, full of untutored freedom. The wonderful elasticity of her limbs supplied the want of strength. The life of exertion, which had commenced from her cradle, had inured her to bear greater fatigue without injury. How few, save those who have had their faculties called into constant action, know what wonders habit will accomplish. There was something about the child, an indescribable, hallowing presence, that produced a marked effect throughout the theater. I once saw a sunbeam stealing through a crevice in the roof, and glancing upon the darkened stage at a rehearsal, that single streak of golden light falling upon the dust and paint and faded scenery and glaring imitations of nature spoke to me with a thrilling tone of green murmuring foliage, of air voiceful with rural sounds, of the flower-studded earth, of nature's rich storehouse of vernal treasures, of all that sunbeams shone upon far away from this mockery and drudgery, this mimicry and misery. As I watched the beam illuminating the surrounding gloom, my mind was filled with fresh and strengthening aspirations that belonged not to this life of representation, that had no affinity with the place and the hour. It was years ago, yet I have never forgotten that one ray of light, 
and the sensations and reflections which it called into existence. Tina is closely associated with that sunray in my thoughts. She was the living sunbeam shining through the darkness of selfishness and strife in the theater to which she belonged. She lured all things on to love her. She discovered and unconsciously threaded her way through some vulnerable avenue into almost every heart. Voices softened when they spoke to her. Unsmiling lips grew blander at her caress. Unloving eyes shone with something like affection when they looked into hers. The purifying sphere of innocence, the sphere of angels about childhood, which, though invisible, is so often perceived, gradually penetrated, with its holy influence, the spirits of all those with whom she communicated. Susan, too, was treated with more consideration and respect because the child was hers. Robin, whose quiet, upright constancy of conduct won him spontaneous esteem, since Tina's advent in the theater had become a person of decided importance. Those who, a few years back, either spurned or pitied the old hunchback, regarded him with a feeling akin to envy when that lovely child would spring upon his knees and wind her arms around his neck and cover his furrowed cheeks with kisses and tenderly pat the protruding hunch as though it were an especial object for caresses. And what was the child to Robin, the poor prompter, whose days were passing within sunless walls, whose evenings and the gas-lighted glare of the theater, upon whose soul stage dust had fallen in such thick clouds that they shut out all nature's pastoral loveliness, who breathed but gaseous air, who only knew beauteous sounds and sights and noble deeds and heroic sacrifices through the inspirations of the poets which he heard declaimed and saw represented until his brain whirled with imaginings which the eye and heart longed to pronounce realities. All that his life had lacked before, all that had foregone, Tina was to him now. He pineth not for fields and brooks, wild flowers and singing birds, for summer smileth in her looks and singeth in her words. The child and its mother transformed his life of care and anxiety into a paradisical existence. But, to return to Pizarro, the drama was enacted with more than the usual eclat. Tina's appearance called forth a warm welcome. Pieces of silver and gold were showered upon the stage. Tina already knew something of the value of money, already comprehended the privations and necessities of her parents. She looked at the glittering coin with wishful eyes that it would not be withdrawn. She had been taught that she must not stoop and gather these showered donations. True, they were intended for her, but stage etiquette of long-established standing had decreed that the money thrown upon the stage should become the perquisite of the carpenters and the property men. Once, Tina had put her foot upon a half-sovereign. She thought that no one saw her. Her life limb quivered with the strong temptation. She might so easily pick it up. It would buy coal for her mother. Then came a sensation of having committed some indefinite wrong, a fear, an oppression. She pushed the shining gold coin away and averted her eyes. Thus early she was tempted. Thus early did she learn resistance. 
So great were Sozin's heart fluttering when Rolla drew his sword and seized Cora's child that the anxious mother hid her face. The leathern girdle might not be securely fastened, might break. She could not look. She heard the well-known words, heard the thunders of applause which the tragedian's favorite point always elicited, and then Robin's whisper greeted her ear. All right, Sue, the birdie's quite safe. See how lovely she looked and how she smiles at you. Then Susan dared look up. Rolla rushed from the stage with the child still held aloft, ran rapidly past Susan and ascended the steps which led to the bridge without lowering his burden. Of course, the instant he appeared upon the bridge, the guns of the Spaniards were leveled towards him. They were fired so suddenly that Susan saw the danger was over before she had time for a new alarm. She hurried around behind the flats to the left-hand wing, where Rolla, after crossing the bridge, had made his exit. She found him dabbing her child's dress with his own red paint, a darkish imitation of not very healthful blood. Susan did not venture to address him. The work was accomplished rapidly and silently. Again, Rolla appeared before the audience. Cora received her child. The hero died. Soon after, the curtain fell and Tina, in her blood-stained dress, bounded joyfully into her mother's arms. That same season, she enacted the Count's child in The Stranger, the petted child in Grandfather Whitehead, one of the babes in the wood, and a number of similar parts. Now and then, Susan experienced the delight of it upon the stage with her child. On these rare occasions, what artist would not have thought the face of the hunchbacked prompter as he watched them both a study? End of section 11.